Hello, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Isaiah, we come to chapter 1, verse 16. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 16. So what does God want then? If religious ritual and beautiful, well-planned services don't do it, what will satisfy him? Well, he tells them in the next verse. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Now, in reading this, it sort of sounds like a works theology of salvation. But it is not. As God cleanses you inwardly, these then will be the things that naturally flow from your life. You will hate evil and not follow down its path. You will do good and care for those that are in need. These are the things that they were not doing. These are the things that God wanted them to do. And then in verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God is offering to cleanse them of their sin. Their sins of the worst kind. God is offering them forgiveness. God is offering them pardon and cleansing. You see, your life can be pure no matter how defiled your life may be, no matter how polluted you may have become, how corrupt you may be, God is offering to cleanse you, to make you new, to make you over, to purify you. You can have a heart that is as white as snow, white as wool. So God is saying, come now and let us reason together. During a Billy Graham crusade in Australia, a Melbourne daily paper received this letter, and I quote, I have heard Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewed him on television, and seen reports and letters concerning his mission. I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitious preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned." What a madness it is to reject and to resist a God of infinite wisdom, infinite love, infinite grace, and infinite power. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In this passage, Isaiah says nothing about how this cleansing comes, but we know that it comes because Jesus took himself our stain of sin. And God judged sin perfectly and completely in Jesus so that we can be accounted white as snow and as white as wool. What tremendous hope there is in God's forgiveness. 
we really can be clean from the stain of sin. Our good works can't clean the stain. Our best intentions or promises can't clean the stain. Our suffering or pain can't clean the stain. Time can't clean the stain. Death can't clean the stain. Only the work of Jesus can make us white as snow. We really can have a break with the past and a new beginning in Jesus Christ. The power of sin, the shame of sin, the guilt of sin, the domination of sin, the terror of sin, and the pain of sin can all be taken away in Jesus. Verse 19, he says, if you are willing and obedient. You see, that's the key. God will not violate your will. God gave to us the capacity of choice. God made us self-determinate beings. The purpose is so that he might receive full praise and glory from our obedience to him and our loving fellowship with him. You know, I don't have to serve God. I don't have to spend time with God. I don't have to live a good life. I can live however I want. I don't have to live a good life. I can live as polluted and corrupt a life as I please. God does not force me to be good. He doesn't force you to be good. But he is pleased when we are. But it takes the act of my will. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. God says, if you're just willing to walk with me, if you're just willing to forsake your sins, I'll bless you. I'll be with you. I'll bless you, and you will have the good of the land. But, verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And, of course, that's the consequence of that kind of a life. A nation whose foundation is destroyed cannot stand. It's going to fall. When the moral foundation of a nation is eroded, there's nothing to fight for, and there's no strength, there's a weakness, there's a corruption. Unfortunately, we see that in the United States today, this great weakness, where once we were a dynamic world power, there was a purpose. There was a strength that has been eroded away from the rottenness and the filthiness that has overcome our nation. The pornography, the abortion mill, the blatant homosexuals. All of this is an eroding of a moral base, leaving us weak and defenseless. In verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. Jerusalem is described as a wife that once was faithful to her husband, but has now become a prostitute. The prophet Hosea's ministry was the same time of Isaiah's. God had commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. And his marriage was to be a picture to people of what God's relationship was like to his people. After Hosea got married, his wife decided to go back to work. God said that Israel was doing the same thing, being a spiritual prostitute and going after all these other gods instead of being faithful to the one and to the true God. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. The Lord Jesus made water into wine. Sinners make wine into water. Your princes are rebellious 
and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. At one time, the city of Jerusalem was the center of worship and justice, and righteousness flowed from it. In Psalm 48, 1, listen. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. This once glorious city was now a place of spiritual harlotry. Their worship of God was corrupted and now it affected their judicial system. The poor, the defenseless could not get a fair hearing. Only the rich could buy their way out, even if they were guilty. Therefore, verse 24, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts is a very familiar term in the Old Testament, and it is usually in reference to the hosts of the heavenly angelic beings. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. Boy, that is really tragic when you think about it. That his people had become the adversary. His people had become his enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. Dross and alloy are impurities in metal. God promises to turn up the heat and refine Judah, taking away their impurities. This is looking to the future. It is dark. They've gone as deep in the pit as you can go, and yet God is making a promise now of the future. The future when he will turn his hand upon the people again and thoroughly wash away the dross. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God will purify Jerusalem to the point where afterward they will be called the city of righteousness. They will be called the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. Now a partial fulfillment of this came through Judah's judgment during the Babylonian captivity. Before the Babylonians came and wiped out the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Jews were followers of just about every god that was ever thought of. But after the Babylonian captivity, they were very strongly followers of God alone. But this will be nothing compared to what Israel will be after the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign in Israel on earth. Verse 28. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. Terebinth trees were sites of pagan worship which idol-loving Judah had kept among them. The terebinth trees were the groves where pagan worship was done which was nothing more or degenerated into nothing more than sexual orgies before these trees that were cut into phallic symbols. 
When Zion is redeemed with justice, they will be ashamed of their former idolatries. It is good to be ashamed and to be embarrassed over sin. There is something wrong with us when we are shameless or beyond embarrassment. God promised that he would give Judah the gift of shame and embarrassment over sin again. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. The Lord here speaks of the spiritual dryness of Judah. Though they continued their religious ritual and ceremony, they were still spiritually dry. And as dry trees, dry gardens, and dry tinder are ready to burn, so is unrepentant Judah ready to feel the fires of God's refining judgment. Now, chapter 2 and verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this was revealed to Isaiah in some kind of a vision because it says that this was a word that he saw. Now, just as a quick footnote here, Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 3, is repeated in Micah chapter 4, 1 through 3. Since Isaiah and Micah were contemporary prophets, it isn't surprising that the same Spirit of the Lord could give these two prophets the exact same word to establish and to emphasize his word. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. In context, the term latter days refers to the time of the Messiah when the anointed of the Lord reigns over the earth. This speaks of the time that many refer to as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus upon this earth. Now, according to Scripture, these are the events of what are called the latter days or the last time. Number one, Christ's first advent, that is the birth, the death, and the resurrection. Number two is the church age, the dispensation of grace. Number three, the rapture of the church, catching away the church. Number four, seven years of tribulation upon the earth, that is Jacob's troubles, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Number five, Christ's second advent in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that is the 1,000-year reign. Number six, the final judgment, that is the white throne judgment that is delineated in Revelation chapter 20. And then number seven is the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation chapter 21. But this, verse 2, speaks of the time many refer to as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. During the millennium, Israel will be the superpower of the world. It will be the leading nation in all of the earth, and the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house, that is, the Temple Mount, which will be the capital of the government of the Messiah. All nations will flow to the capital of the government of Jesus. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. During the millennium, the citizens of earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of Jesus. 
It will be a time of perfectly administered, enforced righteousness on this earth. Now, not everything will be perfect during the millennium. There will be a righteousness in the earth, but it will be an enforced righteousness. Some of the nations will be disobedient and will have to be ruled with the rod of iron. There will be conflicts between the nations as well. However, they will not be allowed to manufacture weapons to go to war. Their differences will be judged at the throne of Jesus Christ. He shall judge between the nations, verse 4, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It isn't going to be the reign of the Messiah itself that will change the heart of man. Citizens of earth will still need to trust in Jesus and his work on their behalf for their personal salvation during the millennium. But war and armed conflict will not be tolerated. Psalm 2 verse 9 tells us what the Messiah will do to the disobedient in that day. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah challenges Judah, that is the house of Jacob, to live in the Messiah's reign right now. To walk in the light of the Lord means to order your life after God's truth and God's ways. And that's something that we can do today. Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We don't have to wait for the millennium. In other words, we can walk in the light of the Lord today. Verse 6, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. The call that God made to Israel is one that we need to heed. I am amazed how many Christians or so-called Christians are involved with yoga, TM, have spirit guides, see nothing wrong with horoscopes, and so on. We need to wake up and stop following these Eastern religions that got a foothold in this country under the guise of science and start following after the Lord instead of the darkness that they offer. He goes on, they are soothsayers like the Philistines. Now the Philistines who lived in the southwest portion of Israel were known for their divination that is looking for signs and contacting the dead and so on. And they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Judah had allowed the false gods of foreigners to captivate their attention. Now, this is not an anti-immigrant statement here. God is not against the cultures or the customs of other peoples, except where those customs and cultures honor and worship false gods. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Those who don't follow the Lord aren't necessarily poor and beggarly. Israel was having problems because they were wealthy and trusting in their riches rather than in the Lord. This was not an anti-wealth statement. God is not against wealth and riches and may choose to bless some with significant resources. But this is a rebuke of the love of riches and their trust in their wealth. Verse 8, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. 
Judah had allowed idols to captivate their attention because everyone has an innate tendency to worship themselves, the work of their own hands, that which they have made with their own fingers. We are tempted to worship what we have made and accomplished instead of worshiping the one who made us. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. There was plenty of worship. In other words, there was plenty of bow down in Judah and plenty of people humbling themselves. They were simply worshiping the wrong things and humbling themselves before the wrong things. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. You can either humble yourself or God will do it for you. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The term, the day of the Lord, used more than 25 times in the Bible, does not necessarily refer to one specific day. It refers to God's time. The idea is that now is the day of man, but the day of man will not last forever. One day the Messiah will end the day of man and bring forth the day of the Lord. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Now Lebanon is the land to the north of Israel, famous for its cedar trees. Bashan was the land east of the Sea of Galilee. Upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops. Now the high tower, the fortified wall, the ships of Tarshish and the beautiful sloops, that's a smaller one-masted ship, all are expressions of the loftiness of man and the haughtiness of men. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In the day of the Lord, every proud, arrogant achievement of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. This day of judgment is coming. And it's interesting that God says that they're going to go into the holes in the rocks and into the caves of the earth. In the book of Revelation, during what is called the sixth seal, we find that the people of the earth, even the great people of the earth, cry under the rocks and the mountains. Listen to it, Revelation 6.15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Verse 19, in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, 
to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When terror strikes, man will cast off even the most treasured of his possessions to run for his life. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a frightened lady on the sinking Titanic. As she prepared to board the lifeboat that was about to be lowered into the waters of the icy Atlantic, she suddenly thought of something that she wanted and that she thought she needed. So she asked permission to return to her stateroom before they cast off. She was granted three minutes or they would leave without her. So she ran across the slanted deck, raced through the gambling hall with all the money that had rolled to one side. Ankle deep in water, she came to her stateroom and pushed aside all of her diamond rings, all of her expensive jewelry, all of her money, and reached above her bed and grabbed three small oranges. She quickly made her way back to the lifeboat and got on. Thirty minutes before this, she would have chosen any piece of jewelry over a whole crate of oranges. But death had boarded the Titanic, and all of a sudden, priceless things became worthless, and worthless things became priceless. And when death came calling, she preferred three small oranges to an entire crate of diamonds. The things that are so important to us tonight, the things that we devote so much time and energy acquiring and maintaining won't matter very much when death comes knocking. Verse 20 says, In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats. Your gold and silver will be useless. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation, during the great famine period, during the great tribulation, that it will take a bag of gold to buy a loaf of bread. It will be worthless to go into the clefts of the rocks, into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. So twice this phrase, to shake the earth mightily. Isaiah speaks about it again in chapter 30. Haggai speaks about it in Haggai 2 verse 6. In Hebrews 12:26, you read the same thing. The time of the great tribulation will be a time of great earthquakes. Revelation 16:18 says, And there were noises and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Verse 22, Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. That is, don't rely upon man. He's frail. Man is as frail as his breath. When he speaks about man's breath, he's talking about the frailty of man. You're just one breath away from death, and so you're speaking of frailty. So don't trust in man. He goes on, for of what account is he? How can man help you when this whole geological convulsion takes place? The earth is shaken so terribly when everything that can be shaken is shaken. Now the Bible does say that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. What can't be shaken? It's my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my trust in him. Everything else will be shaken and flattened. So don't put your trust in man or your confidence in man who is as frail as you are. Put your confidence and your trust in God. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.